Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I am Jonah, here with Mariana. How you doing, Hi. Mariana? <laughs> Good. Hi, everybody. Um, anything new? Um, no. An animal got into my neighbor's trash, and I had to, and I had to clean it this morning, and there were diapers involved. <laughs> Yum. Yeah. So that was that was the situation. But um, how about you? Um, nothing new, just school and teaching and, uh, supposed to be fall here in Texas. Yeah. And that involves getting excited over a day where it's going to be not over 90 degrees. (laughs) I can't believe how warm it is there. I know. I, I really don't understand why people just flock here. Yeah. (laughs) But to each their own. Yep, to each their own. Okay, well, I just want to—I just want to share one piece of news because it's actually relevant to what we're talking about today. Specifically, because we're going to be talking about the remaining pillars of the North American model, which includes the elimination of wildlife markets. So, um, the Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network just published a report about shark and ray fishing and they found that 600,000 metric tons of sharks and rays are caught each year by just 20 countries um and their their study was done between 2007 and 2017 so that's first of all a lot of sharks and rays but it's really just 20 countries that are taking the bulk of these and actually Just five countries are taking over half of them. So Indonesia, Spain, India, Mexico, and the United States account for 330,000 tons of that 600,000 tons, so over half. Mm -hmm. Which um, I was surprised by, like, Spain and India, that they're doing, like, shark and ray fishing. Interesting. And then um, some other just interesting stats... From the report, Hong Kong alone imports over 9,000 tons of just fins, just shark fins every year. Um, and then Malaysia, China, and Singapore are the next largest importers of fins after Hong Kong. So that's crazy because that's not even the whole shark. And then Brazil, Spain, Uruguay, and Italy account for 57% of the global shark meat imports. Hmm which are also just like random countries that I never would have expected. Yeah. Um, And then they broke down like the catch by species, which in in some cases, but uh, unfortunately the majority of sharks and rays that are caught are only recorded like in general groups. So they're not identified to species when reported, which sort of messes up the ability to detect declines of specific species but the one that sort of stuck out to me was that just in 2017 alone 103,528 tons of blue shark were caught so that's just one species which like how on earth could that be considered sustainable um, in any imagination of the mind Um, and then they just sort of you know the the take-home was that there's this huge market going on and 
17% of sharks and rays are critically endangered, endangered, or vulnerable. And then 47% are data deficient, which is a huge proportion that are data deficient. So we don't even know what's going on with almost half of these species, but we're just fishing the crap out of them, basically. Right. Um, but in some, some good news related to this, so at that CITES conference that we talked about a couple episodes ago that just happened in August, um, longfin and shortfin mako sharks were listed as Appendix 2, which you know limits their trade just because they're being so over-exploited and the populations are declining. So that's that's a good step for those species, but you know what about all these other species that we don't know, any, know anything about? Yeah. So I'll kind of bring this up again when we get to the the market wildlife market section because um, this kind of I mean of course this is international, but the fact that the United States is participating in this kind of flies in the face of one of the pillars of the North American model. Yes, it does. Yeah, speaking of, that's the uh, topic we're going to finish today. So this is part two of our series on the North American model. Last episode, if you didn't listen to last episode, I highly suggest you do because um, a lot of what we're going to be talking today um, bounces off last episode. And if you don't have a good understanding of the public trust doctrine, um, there'll be a gap in, in your understanding of today's episode. So to remind everyone of last episode, we, we spoke about the doctrine and how it's the central principle that informs the North American model um, and the way wildlife is managed in the U.S. It's also the first pillar. And after that, there are six others, and we're going to go through them just as a reminder. Um, we'll go through them again. Also, as a reminder, these are foundational principles that inform laws and policies and some laws and policies, you know, directly build from it and other laws and policies are kind of, they kind of, um, use it as inference. But, um, so, uh, the first of course is wildlife are a public trust. The second pillar is the elimination of market hunting slash wildlife commerce. And this is meant to prevent the privatization, commercialization, commoditization of wildlife. Then there's allocation of wildlife is by law rather than the market or other some other de- undemocratic process. Fourth is wildlife can only be killed for legitimate purposes. You know, that includes subsistence, defense, um, property. Um, the fifth is wildlife is an international resource this is a really important one. And that's managed through treaties and cooperating agencies, international agencies, or rather agencies internationally. Um, Six is science informs wildlife policy, not special interests, just science. That's one of the most important ones as well. And the last is a democracy of hunting, which is open access to hunting for all. And by open access, we mean open access. It's supposed to be for everyone, no matter what your social status is or your socioeconomic situation. So since we already covered the first foundational pillar, wildlife are a public trust, Basically, last week, by discussing the public trust doctrine, we'll move on to the others. Yeah, so the first one is the elimination of market hunting, or rather the second one after the public trust doctrine. And um, this is pretty self-explanatory. You know, this was precipitated by 
the tragedy of the commons played out in real life, which is, we talked about that last week where abuse and overuse by certain individuals um, depletes the resource and makes it unavailable to others and especially future generations. And so of course I'm a lot of people I'm sure are aware that there was tons of unregulated hunting and trafficking of wildlife parts and meat um, up until the 19th century. And that caused a rapid decline of a lot of wildlife populations. And, you know, of course in North America, we're speaking about after European colonization, because that's sort of when it started and in other places in the world, um, this is, has a much older past, but you know, some examples are like the passenger pigeon went completely extinct because of just mass unregulated hunting. Um, other species like the bison, beaver, egrets, and other water birds were pushed to the edge of extinction for either trade in their um, skins or furs, and then for the birds trade in their feathers, which were popular in fashion and women's hats and things. And it was essential to get rid of any commercial value of wildlife to prevent them from going extinct. So by eliminating wildlife markets, you were ensuring that these wildlife populations were, weren't going to go extinct. And so really the, the first effort to eliminate markets for game animals was by the New York Sportsman's Club in 1844. And so they focused on, of course, game animals and their efforts were limited to New York City, but it was a pretty important start because by, you know, eliminating trade of wildlife in New York City, it impacted a much broader area because, of course, New York was the center of a lot of this trade. So that was sort of like one of the first um, specific efforts that worked towards elimination of these markets. And then, you know, just sort of peripherally other things like the establishment of Yellowstone National Park in 1872 was an important step because it protected game animals within the park from being hunted for um, the markets. And then uh, one of the most important ones um, in history, and it's still extremely important today, which I'm pretty sure we talked about in our poaching episode last season, um, was the Lacey Act of 1900, which was named in honor of Iowa Congressman John Lacey, who sponsored um, the Yellowstone Park Protection Act and and was a conservation advocate in a lot of respects. Um, so the Lacey Act sort of became the ultimate legal elimination of a lot of the game markets in the United States. And it essentially outlawed trade in wildlife, not all wildlife, but a lot of wildlife, especially in the beginning was game animals and their parts um, across state lines. And so that was sort of the... Um, oh, like the nail in the coffin and, and these um, wildlife markets because you couldn't trade them across state lines. And so that really ended this commercialization. And then the just as an add-on, the Lacey Act was amended in 2008 to include plants, the trade in plants as well, which is important, of course. 
Um, but you know, this is this is a really important pillar in the model, and this elimination of commercial hunting is, you know, like I said, is is really what saved a lot of species. But unfortunately, a lot of laws since the beginning of the night or the beginning of the 20th century haven't really upheld this in a lot of ways. And it's sort of, um, it's kind of like, Oh, we pick and choose where this applies. So there's a lot of wildlife that still has monetary commercial value. And, you know, like I just shared about that shark and ray trade, the United States is one of the top five countries involved in the harvest of over half of those, um, annual uh, harvest. And so, you know, how come there's a commercial trade in sharks and rays and and fish, Mm -hmm. but not in other wildlife? And I think that's, I think this is a really important point because even beyond just this issue is that people, we tend to, like in our society, treat fish differently, um, especially in our laws, and treat them as if they're different from like land animals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's commercial trade in a lot of terrestrial animals is illegal, but fish, you know, that's that's a different thing. We can still, there's still a market for fish. And just like I was just talking about with the sharks, it's having an extremely negative effect on some of these species. And a lot of them, we don't even know how it's affecting them. And so I feel like it's eventually going to reach the same point, you know, as with the bison and the beaver and the egrets where it's like, Oh crap, these things are about to go extinct. Maybe we should eliminate these, these markets, you know? Yeah. It's also gotten to the point where I will actually, I stopped doing this a long time ago. I will not eat fish in restaurants. Even if that restaurant is on the ocean, because you can ask them, where did you acquire this fish? What species is it? And they can give you an answer and it might not be correct because a lot of species go under the radar and um, a lot of restaurants and a lot of suppliers don't even know. I mean, unless you can see the fish, you know what I mean? Like in a market, unless you can see it, you really cannot be sure what what species it is when you're eating it, even if the restaurant tells you what it is. And that's part of the the lack of regulation and the lack of um, oversight. Yeah. And I mean, there are definitely a lot of strict regulations, but because commercial fishing is such a, I mean, it's an industry. Right. The lack of enforcement. Yeah. Because it's a major industry, it's difficult to keep track of all this stuff. And it's especially difficult to look at it without a bias at how it's affecting, you know, um, these actual populations of fish. It's just, I mean, it's just, to me, it's just such a mirror image of what happened to the terrestrial wildlife in the 19th century. Yeah. It's just so big and out of control, in my opinion, that, you know, it's going to take something bad happening, like something going extinct before action is taken. And so that's just one example of 
you know, how we don't really follow this, this model, like, completely like we think we do, you know, yeah, you can't, you know, kill a deer and, and trade that meat and stuff. But there's so many groups of wildlife that there's still a legal trade. And so commercial fishing is one fur bearer trapping is another big one, you know, that you're killing these and I'm, you're killing these fur bearers and then trading their furs on a market. And, you know, of course this is also regulated and theoretically it's sustainable. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit when we get to one of the other pillars, you know, if you don't know anything, just like the fish, if you don't know anything about these populations then how can you determine it's sustainable? So it's like sustainable until proven otherwise, basically. So that's, so that's sort of a similar issue. Um, another major, the, some legal loopholes that fly in the face of this pillar are like the reptile and amphibian trade or even the pet fish trade, mm-hmm. whether they are native or not, because both native and non-native species are involved in this trade. There's very poor or no regulations dealing with a lot of this. Yeah. And there's especially not evidence that it's sustainable. And a lot of times there's evidence that it is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on these same lines, there's things like a trade in turtle meat that the United States is a part of. Yeah. And I mean, it could sometimes this is like tied in with the pet trade because people could be trading turtles for pets and for meat. And a lot of this is going to international markets, especially in Asia. And I actually just learned this yesterday that it wasn't until 2007 that Texas Parks and Wildlife started to take a look at the number of turtles that were being trapped commercially. And that's when they decided to implement regulations. Mm-hmm. And the regulations were like, you you can only tr- commercially trap turtles on private land. Um, but then... Now it's now commercial trapping of turtles is completely prohibited in the state, but it's just really surprising that it was only 12 years ago that the state woke up to this. And um, it just kind of goes to show how a lot of groups of wildlife have gone under the radar and there's still this legal trade in them in addition to the illegal trade. So, you know, the impact is compounded by illegal and illegal trade. Yeah, speaking of while you were talking about that, I just remembered in the latest Wildlife Society magazine that there was a a, a small column um, that Florida, speaking of Florida, is finally implementing new rules on bird traps, not getting rid of, you know, being able to trap birds, which that really should be prohibited. Um, but they're taking a small step, at least, I guess, um, in regulating the traps that are used but that's just you know that's putting a band-aid on a big wound so to say yeah it's it's actually kind of to me it's like disturbing how how regulated hunting and fishing licenses and you know activities related to hunting and fishing how regulated they are but collection and you know trade of these wildlife for pet or for the meat trade is so poorly regulated. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's these collection, this commercial 
trade that's having more of an impact than like hunting, like hunting for meat and stuff. So you'd think that that would take priority, but no, because I mean, hunting, you know, makes money for the state, which is understandable. But, you know, when populations of turtles and stuff are declining, again, it's, you know, sustainable until proven otherwise. Right. And then, you know, in, in all of these cases, there's sort of this issue that is related to the public trust doctrine in that certain people are making a profit from the resources that belong to us as citizens. And that's, that's another thing why this pillar of elimination of wildlife markets is important because it eliminating these markets is sort of goes hand in hand with the public trust doctrine because why should certain people be making money on something that belongs to us? Yeah. Yeah. So there's just, there's just a lack of, of logic and consistency when it comes to these different groups of wildlife and, and how the markets or the prohibition of markets are legally upheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's also important to say, you know, we're not attacking the people who take advantage of this system because it's, it's the system that we want to change. Yeah. And, you know, people who do make money the way we're talking about in an, you know, a frankly undemocratic way, you know, it's not that they're terrible people. It's just that, you know, they're, they're participating in a system that is frankly unjust. I don't think that's an exaggerative word to use, um, but they might they may not realize it because to them it's just normal. We've we've normalized this kind of um, exploitation. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a lot of people that that argue that market based incentives um, have private and public benefit. And they see it sort of as a way of the future. But I, I just think that that's a dangerous road because it just leads to, um, yeah, certain, certain people or certain groups of people benefiting over others. And I think it goes back to what we talked about in the last episode too, just this getting away from communities and being more focused on, you know, how could I benefit from this system and who cares how it affects others? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next pillar is is meant to, I mean, really prevent a lot of this stuff. And it's the allocation of wildlife by law. Unfortunately, the wording of this pillar is really broad and kind of a little bit difficult to understand for some people. It basically means that um, any rules and regulations about wildlife and access to wildlife must be passed through a democratic legislative process on all levels, um, federal, state, even municipal. And the idea behind that, of course, as we're talking, you know, about the public trust is to make our access or allocation distribution to wildlife as equitable as possible for all Americans. And making, ensuring this basically means that we're not managing our wildlife based on the market, which we've been talking about, or any personal or social status. I mentioned socioeconomic condition or land ownership, 
Um, and we'll talk a little bit. I think we, I think we'll talk a little bit later about um, how land laws and wildlife laws almost seem mutually exclusive sometimes when they shouldn't be. Um, but basically the allocation of wildlife by law, uh, the laws that come out of this, they act like the terms of a trust that a beneficiary must follow to access their assets. And, you know, we talked about, you know, being beneficiaries of the public trust doctrine. Examples of these laws, many most people know them, the Endangered Species Act, uh, the Migratory Bird Species Act. Actually, I've found that most people don't know that one. The Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and of course, we spoke about the Lacey Act, which Jonah mentioned. And that one's particularly interesting in today's discussion as it essentially prohibits the trade in, in, of wildlife and some plants. As Jonah mentioned, you know, it's been amended a lot over the last 119 years, um, especially those have, that have been illegally possessed. And there are also many state wildlife laws that also offer protections and regulation. The, you know, the only problem with state laws, I mean, it's good to have state laws, obviously, because the state is um, our trustee, but they tend to be less consistent between states. Uh, and because of that lack of consistency, you can get away with some things in one state that you couldn't in another, but, you know, it's easy to cross the border to, to get, get away with some abuse. However, even though they're less consistent, they are understood better by the public. You know, big acts like the Migratory Bird Species Act aren't as well understood as, say, you know, uh, hunting regulations and hunting laws or, you know, things like that. And that is one of the challenges, um, among others, like enforcement gaps. It, it doesn't matter if, if, I don't know why this is so funny to me. I, I know. It's my own example. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you strangle the seagull for taking your potato chips. Um, and by the way, most gull species are federal protected. Or if you I, are- I would like to see someone try to strangle a seagull though, because- <laughs> You know, I grew up on the coast where you try to, when you're at the beach as a kid, you try to set traps for seagulls. You can't catch them. You no, just can't. They're too smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but if you manage to catch one, you know, it doesn't matter if you've, if you've injured or killed that seagull or if you've, say, harvested a trophy elk out of season. Both are illegal. Both are against the law. But unfortunately, not all wildlife laws are enforced equally or even equitably you are a lot more likely to be prosecuted if you're found smuggling, you know, smuggling that elk meat or smuggling bear gallbladder, for example, across states. Well, across several, across specific states. Some states aren't as good as that. Um, you're more likely to prosecute it if you're found doing that than you are if you're found strangling a seagull um, or killing <laughs> or killing a seagull in some way. <laughs> some way. Um, so even the, even the strictest of wildlife laws let alone the more lenient ones, are inconsistently enforced, not only across states, but also even across municipalities. And there are municipal laws that you should know in your own town and county um, that often, you know, strengthen the state laws, um, although, you know, they could also loosen them as well. But, you know, it's, it's easy for an enforcement agency to put wildlife laws and regulations at the bottom of their priorities because they have a lot more to do general enforcement agencies like you know the sheriff's office and things like that 
we do have game wardens and federal officers and departments specifically designated to enforce wildlife laws. Um, I don't know if people are aware that, you know, the Border Patrol has has um, officers, have, have wildlife officers. Um, Homeland Security has wildlife officers. The FBI has wildlife officers. But anyway, so we do have these designated departments and um, enforcers, but they are too few. Most people don't know about them. And a lot of times they just, I mean, they just can't do enough. There, there are too many violations, too many violators compared to how many um, designated wardens and federal officers we have for wildlife laws. Um, so there's definitely a gap there. They, you know, they, they do good work, especially in terms of like international trade and catching people, you know, when, when people are caught, you know, with turtles taped to their legs trying to hop on a plane. Um, that's good. And that means, <laughs> that means the system is working, but, um, a lot of that goes under the radar. So that, that's the, those are the enforcement challenges, of course, to put it, you know, to, to put it briefly, you could spend several episodes talking about that. And then of course, there's also uh, another challenge to this, to this pillar is legislative inconsistency, um, which we've, we've talked a bit about, you know, many species in taxa have fallen between the cracks, especially the herps. Um, and you know, the herps, as we said, make up a significant portion of the pet trade and the smuggling markets in the U S. Um, so, you know, they're entering the illegal pet trade. They're also entering the legal pet trade, which shouldn't be legal, but that's a problem as well. Legislative inconsistency. And as I said before, you also have to consider the lack of interconnectivity between land laws and wildlife laws. And that was that was one of Aldo Leopold's points is a lack of interconnectivity. And, you know, one of his arguments was that there has to be more interconnectivity between land and wildlife and the way we look at it and also the way that we look at ourselves in nature. Um, certain acts like the ESA, like the Endangered Species Act, do incorporate habitat for some protected species for those that fall under endangered. They do have critical habitat regulations when it works. Um, but many others don't, and there are just way too many land use and land property laws, like we talked about last episode, that don't consider wildlife ecosystems. So there's another, a, a big legislative gap and another challenge to this pillar. And I saved the best for last are changes in the administration. Every one of these acts, um, as we talked about, you know, are democratically passed and they're vulnerable to sudden changes depending on who's in control of the Congress, the White House, the Department of the Interior, um, which which oversees these and relevant agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Agency. Um, it, the Endangered Species Act is probably the most clear and present example of this phenomenon. Um, as many people, especially probably those who listen to this podcast, know um, our current administration in the U.S. has made several changes, several rollbacks to the ESA, and most of them have been in the language, so it's hard for people to um, understand the the um, implications. But for example, the ESA contains very specific language in more than one place that any decisions that are made for listing or delisting or any habitat decisions made for endangered species or any or threatened species. These decisions cannot and must not be based on the market or economic factors. And just recently, the current administration has entirely removed that language um, from the ESA, which is 
insane. Like the implications of that, that, that totally, I mean, that, that completely changes the, the integrity of, of the ESA that completely changes the integrity of the way we, we manage wildlife in this country. Uh, it was already a challenge because as we know, market and economic factors were already playing way too big a part in the way we, we manage wildlife, but now our threatened and endangered species are, you know, I mean, they're in real trouble if, if this, if this really passes, you know, right up right now, it's up to other lawmakers, members of Congress and our attorneys general to challenge the, this change as well as many others. And they are, or at least they've, they voiced their intent to do so. And I trust that. And it's also up to us, you know, the, the public can challenge any government action in the courts um, under the Administrative Procedures Act, which I've mentioned before, and other similar statutes. Um, and, I, and I know that many NGOs especially are doing so, but it's also up to us as the public to voice our um, opinions, our stances, and to make sure, you know, we we contact our Congress um, people and, and things like that. But anyway, that's very complicated. And I want to make sure to reiterate, as we try to do as often as we can, that wildlife... Um, Wildlife, it should not be a political issue and wildlife laws should not be a political issue. They should not be politicized um, because that really compromises um, the democracy of the laws and the way we manage our wildlife. Um, they, they really should not be politicized issues, but unfortunately they are. So there you have it. Yeah, I think that that's probably been a theme in a lot of things we've discussed in this podcast. Yeah. Even though we've never said that explicitly, that a lot of these issues, a lot of the issues that we see with what's going on in wildlife conservation is because wildlife and issues surrounding them are politicized. Yeah. Um, So the next pillar is that wildlife can only be used for legitimate purposes, which sounds about as subjective as you can get. Um, because, you know, how do you define legitimate? Is that up to, like we said in the last episode, that could be up to interpretation of whatever particular judge is dealing with a certain case. So it's just, it's just far too open to legal interpretation. You know, I mean, we could just list so many (laughs) things that go on in this country that fly in the face of this, like, target practice on prairie dogs you know what how can anyone actually justify that as a legitimate use or a legitimate purpose yeah it's just like yeah target practice that's all it is yeah i've I've watched this personally happen prairie dogs being used as target practice in fact you know we should post our a picture i actually recovered a live round um, that these, um, I, I'm not even going to call them hunters, these shooters. guys, with, yeah, these shooters um, left behind a live round for what they were using on prairie dogs. It's humongous. Um, it's, you know, it's insane. I mean, it would just obliterate a prairie dog's body, which is what they want. Uh, they enjoy watching that. We should post a picture of that because I have that. Um, I keep it just as a reminder of, you know, what I what I do with prairie dogs out there. 
um, yeah, how is it? I mean, that's, it's frivolous. It's unnecessary. Yeah. I remember when I worked in Montana, I met these guys that came down from Ontario to shoot prairie dogs and where I was working, they weren't allowed to to do it on the American Prairie Reserve, but they were doing it on the public land around. Um, And yeah, they were just talking about like, like how it's just fun to watch them just like this little puff of blood just explode. And up until that point, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, when they're telling me this, I'm just like, first of all, how is this legal? Right. And how how is this justified as a legitimate killing of these animals? And a lot of this, well, most of this, I should say, happens on private land. And this, I mean, there are five species of prairie dog and only one is protected uh, under federal law. And that's the Utah prairie dog. Every other prairie dog is open season. Anybody can just go on a private land or sometimes public land and just use them as target practice. And that's just an example of one species. There are countless species where that happens. Um, So, you know, like Jonah was saying, there's just no argument for how that that is a legitimate use of of wildlife that's in the public trust. Yeah. And, you know, without getting too into the weeds about the way that state agencies work, but each state has, you know, they split up different wildlife species into different groups. So there's game animals that are hunted this way. There's endangered and threatened species. There's Mm non-game. And so the non-game are ones where a lot of cases you do have to have a hunting license, but there's no limits to possession, no possession limits, no bag limits, no season. And so it's sort of like a free for all. And a lot of these animals are like, um, mesocarnivores like uh foxes and coyotes and of course i'm generalizing because again each state is different but yeah foxes coyotes bobcats um opossums raccoons prairie dogs in some places and so you can just go out and you know you don't there is you don't have to justify a reason for killing them you can basically make one up and that's just that's what happens with these species that are in the non-game category. And again, like just the existence of a non-game category flies in the face of this pillar. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, a, a big example of how <laughs> this non-game category gets abused are these predator killing contests, which really became widespread in the early 1990s and they're basically where and these are in almost every state um there's a few states that have banned them which i'll talk about in a second but um it's basically where groups of again quote unquote hunters get together and there's some sort of prize for either who can kill the most of a certain Generally, it's predators or sometimes prairie dogs um, who can kill the most coyotes, you know, who could have the biggest pile of carcasses. In Texas, there's one that's called like the big bobcat contest, and it's who can kill the biggest bobcat. But in order to qualify, you have to kill like a certain number of gray foxes in order to 
be able to enter the bobcat oh that you kill. God. And I mean, so, you know, there's hundreds of these contests across the country, which means that there's just thousands and thousands of non-game animals being killed for illegitimate purposes. And this is legal in a lot of states. And California, it was the first one to make it illegal. And actually just earlier this year, New Mexico made it illegal. Yep. And then Vermont recently made it illegal. And there's several other states that are soon to follow. So finally, these people are waking up. um, And I guess this is, I hate to say it, one role where humane society of the United States is... (laughs) And their funding and their uh, campaigning has done something good. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, of course, participants in these contests say that this is a legitimate way of controlling predator populations. So they're not killing livestock or deer. And they say that it's a tradition or it's a public service. And, you know, it's just like buddies getting together, you know, to do any other form of fun. And, (laughs) I mean... First of all, saying that it's a tradition is ridiculous because it's only been around for less than 30 years (laughs) in a lot of cases. It's like, okay, yeah, well, mass bison killing has been a tradition or like head hunting was a tradition. (laughs) There's all you could say that about anything. And um, it's crazy. And of course, you know, ethical hunters are against these contests. Oh, yeah. And of course, there's no scientific support to say that these are effective in controlling predator populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also just such an antiquated perspective. Like, I just, I hate the the term predator control because what does that even mean? Yeah. It sort of has this, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like when you, when people use that, it basically is saying that predators need to be controlled and generally it's to benefit the prey species. So it just completely takes out the role that these carnivores play in an ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's so perverse. Like in Texas alone, there are more than 50 towns that have these kind of contests over 8,000 participants. And in that big Bobcat contest, the winner from the one last year, the grand prize was over $40,000 for killing like a 33 pound Bobcat. Oh my God. Which is insane where is that money coming from you have to pay to oh, right. be entered in so i think for the big bobcat i was just looking this morning it's like you have to pay 200 dollars to enter and then there's some other fees and of course because there's like thousands of people participating in this you know all that money gets pooled and it gets split up to the winners and like it's just it's so perverse there's just no other word to describe this and it again, just completely flies in the face of this pillar. There's absolutely no legitimate way to justify this. Yeah. And especially because in a lot of these cases, the carcasses are just wasted. You know, when you pile up a huge mound of coyote carcasses, you think these people are going to like skin them and like try to sell them. Like, no, they're just there for the prize money. Yeah. Yeah, they just get wasted. Yeah, I'm usually very sense like i'm usually super sensitive about traditions and cultures but this is just not something i can reconcile with like this isn't something that i feel like i could 
because usually you can you can you can reconcile you know conservation needs with cultural you know practices and traditions but this is this is not something you can this is just something you must ban entirely and unfortunately a lot of hunting groups because we're you know like i said a lot of ethical hunters are against this but unfortunately a lot of the things that you read online are either humane society super emotional propaganda yeah or you know hunters seeing the banning of these contests as a threat to to hunting but no it the, these contests are not the same as hunting exactly. <laughs> like this is mass killing <laughs> for prize money yeah yeah it's not the same and, and that is a good point you know not to delve too deep into it um there's you know a lot of propaganda on both sides and you know people tend to get into these cultural bubbles um where mess you know proper messages get ignored but anyway that's a whole another issue so a lot of this has to do with um personal responsibility with our state's responsibilities right with our country's responsibilities but there's also a much wider responsibility of course because you know we're part of a global community which brings us to our next pillar, which is that wildlife is an, an, is an international resource. Obviously, as we all know, many, if not most, of our wildlife cross international borders, you know, whether by land, by sea, by river, by air. Um, and so it's our responsibility to work with our international neighbors and also more distant nations um, in wildlife protections to cooperate in wildlife management with them as well. And we do have uh, treaties that serve this purpose. We've talked about CITES before. That's, you know, probably the biggest one. And we've mentioned the Migratory Bird Species Act, which is an agreement with, uh, uh, that we have with Mexico and Canada through treaty. Even non-binding agreements like the Whaling Convention, you know, play a part in this, in our international cooperation um, for with natural resources. And I think a lot of people tend to forget that um, in any changes we make to these treaties, to our acts, which are to our laws, which are, you know, our participation in these treaties, any changes we make to them will do have a ripple effect on other countries and vice versa. Um, and it'll have it has a ripple effect on how we manage our wildlife, on how they manage our wildlife, on how we cooperate, especially with Mexico and Canada because they're our most our immediate neighbors. Uh, we do a lot of cooperation with them, or at least we're supposed to. Um, but we, I feel that we do need to participate more on the international stage, not only to respect this pillar, but also to respect um, our neighbors and um, their efforts to protect wildlife. Or their lack of efforts. Like we need to, you know, we need to be better at that. And we certainly do cooperate with these nations. We meet with them. You know, we have conventions. But I really don't feel like it's enough. And especially in today's political climate or politicized climate, I should say, I just don't think it's enough um, what we're doing. And, and there are many European, Asian and African countries that really do put us to shame um, when it comes to international participation and cooperation, uh, they're much better at it than we are, and we need to catch up. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of, um, especially in Africa right now, a lot of um, international cooperations 
focused on like landscape connectivity. So where I worked in Zambia, um, in Kafui National Park, that was part of the Kavango, Zambezi, um, Trans Frontier Conservation Area. And so that's this cooperation by um, Angola, Namibia, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe to, you know, ensure connectivity between their national parks and things and to just focus on conservation of wildlife populations on an international scale there because, you know, like you said, these animals don't see these political borders. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they just are way ahead of us with stuff like that. Um, You know, we may have these, you know, these acts and and treaties and stuff, but as far as on the ground efforts like that, I mean, I don't think we have anything that compares, particularly talking about landscape conservation stuff, which I think is one of the most important things. Um, But I also find it interesting how in the United States, you know, this is just because this is what, I know we are so critical of other countries when they are poaching wildlife and, you know, not managing wildlife responsibly. And I just, I'm sure in a lot of other countries, people aren't thinking about how we manage wildlife in the United States, but, you know, we are so critical of everyone else. It's like, um, that one proverb, like, uh, Take a look at your own eye before you point out, or don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a plank in your eye or something. Oh, gosh, you know, I never heard that. <laughs> it's from the Bible. I forget um, exactly how it goes. But basically, you know, we're we're pointing at others to, to do this and do these things. But we should really be focusing on, you know, what we are doing and what our failures are. And... I just, um, yeah, we're just so prone to that in the United States, I think. Almost like we have this superiority. And yes, like we have been super successful in a lot of things, but we've also failed in a lot of things. And talking about wildlife as an international resource, like you said, we need to be cooperating and helping other countries like, you know, Fish and Wildlife Service does a lot of that by providing funding to other countries and things. But again, we need to look at the plank in our own eye and what we need to be solving here as well. Yeah. And we have, we have to be consistent in our investments too. Um, I was going to totally forget to mention um, the bond, the bond convention, which is a convention on the uh, conversation, conservation of migratory species. Um, and that's that's a global convention, and of course, we here in North America have the uh, Migratory Bird Species Act. This is basically the global equivalent, and there are a lot of signatories to it. Not surprisingly, the U.S. is not a signatory, but neither are Canada and Mexico. And I'm making an inference here, but it may be because we feel that our um, Migratory Bird Species Act is enough. And I think that's a really myopic view. I think we should be involved in these greater efforts too. Um, I don't think it would be redundant to be part of this um, convention, um, but we're not a part of it. There are, you know, 
almost almost all of South America is part of it. The majority of countries on the African continent are part of it. I think all all European countries are part of it, except for um, except for Russia. Anyway, we also have to you know we also have to be consistent in our investments and in our message to the rest of the world about what we're invested in and how deeply we're invested in them. Um, so that's just one example. So the next pillar is that science should inform wildlife policy. And this is a big one that we've dabbled in throughout the podcast as we, um, you know, talk about wildlife issues. And this one's pretty self-explanatory and it should be the gold standard, but, um, you know, we, this also is not always adhered to. Um, so this, like all of these pillars, has a root in the late 19th century as pop- wildlife populations were declining. Um, people like Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot were some of the original people to be proponents of science-based wildlife management. Um, but really it was Aldo Leopold's uh, book in 1930 called American Game Policy, which was the beginning of science-based management. And of course, over the past century, our science-based management has increased exponentially. And I think that this is is really a a place where the United States has been a leader in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think, you know, like we've said, that so many wildlife issues are politicized and policies aren't informed solely on scientific evidence. And this is particularly the case when there's limited funding for scientific research. And so um, there's just too much room for issues to be in, to become political rather than being based on the science. And like you were talking about the endangered species, that's, that was intended to be an effort where, you know, listing was based completely on the science and, now with these changes that it's removing that um that limitation and i mean i i kind of already touched on this but there's so many cases in which certain management policies are considered sustainable until proven otherwise so they're not really based in science it's sort of a lot of times just based in guesses of course because we can't know everything about all wildlife populations um so again, you know, fur bear trapping is an example where many states have regulations on certain species that are sort of made up on what people think is sustainable because we don't have scientific information on a lot of these populations. And so again, harvests are considered sustainable until proven otherwise. And it's the same kind of thing like I was talking about with the sharks. Yeah. Where it's going to take something you know, some population decline to change this, um, this way of going about fur trapping and then, you know, predator contests as well until someone sees that it is causing population declines. Is it going to be, are these issues going to be addressed? And then finally, another Texas example, which I feel like I'm just like beating Texas to death, but, um, I see just so many issues down here um, compared to other states. So 
cougars in Texas are considered non-game, and so I, this is kind of relevant to what I already said. There's no season, no bag limit, no possession limits. So how is this is this based in science? This putting cougars into the non-game category is solely because if you don't, if you take them out of that category, it's going to affect ranchers that think that cougars are going to have some significant impact on their livestock. And again, this is just not based in science um, because we know that in other plenty of other studies, you know, cougars are having a very minimal impact on livestock. You know, very low percentage of their diet is is that is livestock. But again, I think my whole point with these examples is that these laws and regulations are sort of made up. There's no scientific basis, and so it's not like we are setting these regulations based on some information we have that supports these. They're, they're unsupported laws and regulations. And like I said, we can't know everything about all wildlife populations. So a lot of these regulations are conservative. And so I'm not like bashing these state agencies, but again, it can get kind of subjective when we don't know a thing about the population. And I think, Time and time again, not even just in the United States, but throughout the world, we've learned that the most successful conservation is always based in science. And the development of human dimensions part of wildlife management has sort of, I think, made wildlife issues more politicized because, you know, you have things that you have to deal with, like social care and capacity which can you know can be based in science, but it's not based in the ecology of of what this area can support. So I, I think that there's just too much room for because politi- politi- too much room for politicizing wildlife because human dimensions is such a part of our wildlife management now. So I think it's important to reiterate that wildlife is not a commodity, or at least it shouldn't be. And it's the way our democratic um, wildlife regulations work and are supposed to work is that public opinion must be considered as part of our democratic legislative process, but it must never be the primary deciding factor in management decisions. Um, So anytime a public agency makes a management decision, there is a period of, you know, there's what they call a period of um, public comment. That's pro- that's not the official word for it, is it? But there's a period of public comment. And the agency is obligated to read every single public comment and often respond to them as well and to take them into consideration. But they shouldn't take precedence. Facts, data, science should take precedence in our management decisions. So, um, even if there's a major public consensus um, with a with a specific opinion, if it is contrary to the science, it can't be used to make the, that management decision. Um, theoretically, so that's kind of <laughs> theoretically, yeah, exactly. So that's really important to remember, um, and it doesn't it doesn't always work that way. Um, but yeah, that's that's how it's supposed to work. And uh, I think 
it's a little bit difficult to for a lot of people to understand um, because they believe that the that the the end all for for the way our management decisions are supposed to happen is that we make the decision and indeed we have equal access but um the point is that professionals um and this is in the language of the pillars and in cuz you know the language is a little bit different depending on where you access it but in many places this is in the language of the pillars that professionals which includes biologists and scientists must make the ultimate decision um so yeah i think this is this is sort of what i was getting at last week when i was talking about how i see the tragedy of the commons and how you know nature deficit disorder could be the tragedy when the majority of the common public have nature deficit disorder because when that occurs you have this um conflict between what the public want and what the science says true yeah and we see this so often throughout the world where things happen and decisions are made and you're like what that is like completely contrary to the science <laughs> yeah but it's because that's what people wanted like the thing i i mean this we're, this doesn't have to do with the United States, but the thing that comes to mind is that killing of the hyenas to protect the feral horses in Namibia. You know, stuff like, I wish I could think of off the top of my head an example in the United States, but there are definitely cases where this happens um, because where the public opinion, which is naive or contrary to the science, is what is favored over the actual evidence. The Wild Horses and Burrows Act, I think, would fall under that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Kill not that we want to get into that again, but <laughs> so um, so that brings us to the final pillar of um, the model, which is democracy of hunting. So re regardless of, and, and we're going to talk about this regardless of the commercialization and commoditization question, which is a big one. Um, but regardless of that, um, regardless of that, wildlife remains open access, and that includes hunting. Um, and of course, you know, uh, we won't get back into the, you know, the legitimate or illegitimate killing, but uh, at its most basic level, the states, and in some cases, the federal government um, is responsible for ensuring uh, that our access to hunting opportunities are equal and equitable. And so this pillar actually um, has led to or has informed um, a lot of our um, a lot of policies that revolve around hunting, obviously, um, some that many people know, some many people won't. One of these policies is the duck stamp, um, which is a required purchase for a waterfowl hunting license, and you actually have to carry it with you. So it's basically part of the license. Um, and the funds from the duck stamp are meant to go to federal conservation programs. There's also the Pittman-Robertson Act, which is an 11% tax on firearms, ammunition, archery equipment, um, and anything, any other equipment um, for hunting 
uh, and that goes to federal programs for wildlife conservation, as well as hunter education, I believe. There's also the Dingle Johnson Act, which is basically the equivalent. It's a tax uh, for, for anglers. It's a tax on rods and tackle, um, other angling equipment, I think even um, motorboat fuel in some cases. That goes to federal programs for fisheries conservation and for angler education. And of course, there are the many hunting and angling licenses and fees um, that go toward state conservation programs. And there are also public land fees and donation programs. And those funds go to the relevant agency, the Park Service, the Forest Service, um, BLM, and things like that. So basically, the idea is public funding for public access. Yeah, so I think going back to, to the la- relating this pillar to the last pillar the, that um, or one of the other pillars that wildlife is allocated by law. So this democracy of hunting is related to that because that demo- or that allocation of wildlife by law also means that laws are what establish hunting regulations and practices. So, you know, when we say wildlife is open to the public and us as our trust, it doesn't mean it's a free for all like these, right? like it is for (laughs) (laughs) non-game. It it means that there's laws that have to be followed in order for you to access that. And that's, I mean, that's just part of, it's a necessary part of a, a public commons, a public resource. You have to have those laws in order to prevent the tragedy of the commons. Um, Yeah. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's a good point. So I, I actually, I really like all of these, all these policies and the, and the way they, they work. Um, They work pretty well. They're among the, um, among the acts, wildlife acts we have, these, these ones are very effective, but to speak about the challenges um, of this p- that this pillar faces of democracy of hunting, one of them is the question of of wealth and um, income income inequality. There's no denying that hunting is easier and more accessible for the affluent. You know, depending on the state, depending on the species, depending on the program, hunting licenses can can be prohibitively expensive. Um, and in many cases, you've entered a lottery and you're not even guaranteed the, you know, quote unquote access that you've paid for. Um, so which, of course, there's there's a good reason for lotteries. But, you know, in principle, um, it's not a guarantee, um, even though you've paid for it. And so, you know, we're also talking about um, hunting equipment, angling equipment, you know, from firearms to motorboat fuel, um, even tents. If you're going backpacking, you know, that's. That's an expensive hobby. Um, so every little thing, every big thing contributes um, to your hunting success and especially your hunting enjoyment. You know, if you're not outfitted properly, um, neither will you be as successful and, uh, and neither will you enjoy it as much. And those kind of things are very expensive, increasingly so. Um, and uh, that includes like things like guiding services. These are basically, you know, what I might call quality of life privileges. Um, and that's important. That's important to consider um, for for many hunters, because, you know, we do have a, a, 
a, I was going to say growing decrease. That doesn't make any sense. We do have a, a, a persistent decrease in the, these, in participants in this kind of, in these kind of activities. And it, and it has a lot to do with socioeconomic factors um, and other accessibility factors. So that's definitely, you know, when you talk about the democracy of hunting of, you know, everybody being able to access um, hunting opportunities, that's definitely a, um, a big obstacle for many people. Um, and of course, you know, the, the solution to that is, is, is varied and, and arguable. So, and, you know, I, I have no solution to that, but it is something to keep in mind when we're talking about um, equal access. And of course, as we spoke a lot about in the last episode, and we'll continue to do so ad nauseum, there's the there's the issue of private land. Um, again, fencing and enclosing wildlife on your land, it's that's not democratic. It's not equitable. It does not allow for equal access. And the people who charge um, fees to uh, fees to access their land in order to hunt these animals on their private land, that's I'm sorry, but that's exploitative. Um, so, you know, that's also not equitable. And there's also, there are other, there are also public land issues. Um, everything we say about private land is not to say that there aren't issues with public land either. Um, there are questions of equal access when it comes to our public lands. Some of them are important, like national monuments, you know, it's important to restrict some access, um, because there, you know, there are a lot of, um, um, sensitive historical um, artifacts and, and such on that kind of land. But anyway, um, other restrictions to our public lands um, does bring the question of equal access, um, especially in this case for hunting and angling. Uh, a lot of times you have to pay a fee to access the public land. Um, and sometimes public land, it's not so public, you know, such as land um, that has a, a ranching lease, things like that. Um, so there's there's also the question of that, of, of equitable access um, with public land. Um, basically, this pillar, the democracy of hunting pillar, it's mostly informed um, the public funding for public access um, side of, of the principle, uh, but we, we shouldn't forget um, the exact language um, of the pillar, which is, you know, democracy and open access to hunting opportunities. Yeah, and um, in a forthcoming episode, we'll be sort of revisiting this topic of, of land, you know, public and private, um, when we talk about land ethics. So um, that's just a teaser, because it's a, it's a big issue in the United States. And it's also something that really s makes us unique among other countries is our land, public versus private land use, uh, whatever, regime. Yeah, I'm really excited about that episode. Okay, so those are the pillars of the North American model. Yep. And, you know, again, these are just supposed to be guiding principles. And they were also sort of developed looking backwards in history and looking at themes in how our wildlife management system has come about. And so, you know, I, I'm most outspoken about what I'm critical of. <laughs> I think <laughs> that people that listen to the podcast know that. Um, but, you know, I just want to say that 
on a less critical note, we really have in the United States and North America paved the way in conservation in a lot of regards in some of the things that we've mentioned. Um, so I don't want people to take my criticisms to mean that we're failing at everything. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just speaking for myself and you can, you know, add, but I, I think that um, focusing on our success and how we paid the way is valuable, but, you know, patting ourselves on the back doesn't solve the problems that we still have. And I think we do way too much patting ourselves on the back and praising our supposed adherence to the North American model. I, I mean, I just hear it all the time. And whenever you're taught about the North American model, the North American model is so unique and it's just why we're so much different and better than other countries. And I mean, in these past two episodes, we've just talked about how we're not. Yeah, we have successes and we have failures and they're just different from other countries. So we can't say that we're superior in our wildlife management system. Um, it It is definitely unique in the world, but yeah, we shouldn't think that we have all the answers. You know, like we talked about, we should be looking at other systems to address the failures that we're experiencing. And I think it's also important to avoid, um, I mentioned it last episode, this thing called futurism, where we, you know, think that we are so much more advanced, you know, in our present day, and we're, you know, looking backwards in history, and, oh, they're horrible, and like, yes, like, they did a lot of horrible things, particularly when we're talking about our failures in wildlife management in the past, you know, but of course, we have more science to work with now. So we have more of an understanding, we have a more developed ecological ethic. Um, well, in some cases, um, but I, but those aren't excuses for the failures in the past. Um, and we really have gotten to this place in our management system, like relatively overnight. It's pretty impressive how our management system has gone to where it is basically in the past hundred years, you know, since Teddy Roosevelt is when a lot of this stuff started happening, but it was a learning process and it still is, but we can't let that fact um, be an excuse for inaction or poor management. We can't, you know, adaptive management is important and, but we can't, use as an excuse on why we're failing. And I think that happens a lot. You know, well, we, we just don't know a lot about this. And again, I think it has to do with the sustainable until proven otherwise that that's just too prevalent. And that's basically what I'm getting at. We can't think about, oh, this is a process. And so we're going to make mistakes, which of course we are, but you know, that's not an excuse for preventing um, responsible management from happening or that's not an excuse for not letting yeah responsible management from happening I agree that it's important to think critically about you know about this model in into you know in both directions um, both thinking critically about the challenges to the model and how we can improve um, and also thinking thinking critically about um, the model itself and how it how we can f we can fit the model into our modern adaptive management requirements or needs. Um, so yeah, I think you know 
I think the principles of the model are um, are sound, and um, we can do if we think more critically about them and and about our management, um, we can find solutions to many of these challenges. Today's sustainability tip is to minimize the plastic waste you create by making homemade toothpaste and deodorant, which is what I do. And you can also do this with soap and shampoo. Um, but the homemade toothpaste is super easy. Um, I got, I'll, I'll share the, or we'll put in the show notes, the recipe, because it's, it's really simple. And it, in my opinion, is far superior to this, these commercial toothpaste. And then the, the deodorant is, is really effective too. And it's also, both of these things are healthier for you. Um, if you make them yourself, because like, for example, deodorants, um, first of all, they promote perspiration and body odor, um, the commercial ones. But for women, like when you shave your armpits, um, there's aluminum in a lot of deodorant. And so it gets absorbed in your, your armpits and that actually increases your risk of breast cancer. So in addition to just your own personal health, um, obviously making homemade toothpaste and deodorant means that you don't have to throw away these, you know, plastic tubes and, and containers that they come in from commercially bought products. So thank you for listening. And as usual, if you have any questions or comments, we want to hear from you. So please contact us. Uh, you can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. You can also email us anything you want to say at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. As usual, you can visit our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com where you can listen to more episodes if you haven't heard them already. And yeah. Uh, you not see you next time. You'll hear us next time. Yes. You, oh, we right. don't know who you are. Yes, you will uh, hear us next time. Yes, I'm so bad at closing these. You're much better at them. <laughs> okay. Okay.